It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you. Um, happy to be back. We had a week off last week because I was on assignment um, in the decidedly non-international affairs of the Mountain West Baseball Championship in Fresno, California. So happy to be back. Not and, yet a foreign country. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations to the San Jose State Spartans who are going to the NCAA tournament. Oh, good for that. We're in the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2002. Um, today, we are talking about the new jobs report. That labor market won't cool off, but we are going to do a big catch up on the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which remains the biggest land war in Europe since the end of the Second World War. And I'm still somewhat struck every time I read up on this subject at the apathy with which it's greeted in the United States. But then I think maybe it was probably the same before the U.S. entered the First World War and the Second World War. So maybe that's just how it is over here, bordered by two vast oceans. We can afford to tune in and tune out to these things. Or we think we can. Yes, I think that's right, though. So this week, the headlines, drone strikes in Moscow. Three buildings evacuated in a posh neighborhood where Vladimir Putin lives. Putin says it's provocation. Um, The Ukrainians are shelling uh, the Belogorod region uh, on the border with Russia. 2,500 people have been evacuated. So Ukraine is bringing the war to Russia. But also Russia last week, after like a Verdun-like struggle, seized Bakhmut despite losing about 100,000 troops, according to Joe Biden. Yes, that's... Now that's Ukraine it. is getting ready to seize Bakhmut back. Rumors, reports are, but this city isn't even strategic. It's symbolic, according to the experts. There's well, a lot not only that, there. but whoever takes Bakhmut uh, will be taking a shattered, ruined city. I yeah. mean, there, it won't be a functioning community for some years to come. Uh, A pre-war population of 70,000. It will not be that. Uh, Well, let's back up a little bit, though, because many things have happened since we've last discussed Ukraine. And I think it it is worthwhile trying to catch up with as many of them as we can. And we'll certainly miss a few. Other big, big note. uh, Kiev was attacked at least 17 times in May. That's right. And shot down 15 missiles and 21 drones yesterday thursday first day of june so the bombardment of kiev continues that's right in fact it's escalated in in recent days but to back up a bit about three weeks ago uh ukrainian president volodymyr Zelensky basically went on tour he went first to italy and met with uh prime minister georgia maloney he went next to germany and met with chancellor olaf schultz and then to France and then to Great Britain, meeting with Emmanuel Macron and Rishi Sunak. At each stop, he gained new pledges of military aid. The package in Germany was said to be, uh, in fact, many commentators were surprised at both how large and how detailed it was, armored vehicles and things of this nature. Uh, And then... He, that was eclipsed a couple of days later when he arrived in Great Britain and uh, was given the Storm Shadow cruise missile system, which at that time was the longest range 
weapons system that the West had provided to Ukraine thus far in the war. Uh, from there, I think he went back to Ukraine for a little while and then uh, continued his globetrotting ways. In fact, two weeks ago when we were uh, taping, while literally while we were taping this show, uh, he made a surprise guest appearance at the Arab League Summit in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, none of the Arab League nations were going to provide him with any weapons, but it was just, again, surprising that he would appear there at all because many, if not most, of the Arab League nations are at least thought to be tilting towards the Russian side, as we've discussed in previous episodes. Oil buddies. Yes, and uh, and you know, in many cases, uh, actively authoritarian, much in the same way that Russia and China are. Funny how uh, petro states work like that. Yes, well, many of them do anyway. Not all of them, uh, but uh, now, mind you, the Arab League had very good reason to want to host Zelensky at that summit uh, because had they not done so. The only headline coming out of the Arab League summit that weekend would have been the first appearance at an Arab League summit by Bashar al-Assad, the war criminal dictator of Syria, who had been banished from the League for a dozen years or maybe ten, at least 10 years uh, because of the atrocities committed uh, by him against his own people. With the backing but, of the Russians. Correct. Uh, and so... Uh, this helped balance things out for them. Zelensky, as is his manner, was quite judicious, right? But he was essentially made the case that you should be supporting us, right? Uh, uh, you don't want your nations invaded any more than we want our nation to be invaded. And he said that with Assad there. Yes. Uh, Good for him. Now, mind you, but Assad didn't invade anybody. He only no, but he's a, a Russian puppet. Well, I don't know to about a degree. puppet, but yeah, he's, I mean, he's, 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 a, he's a Russian. He's on he's, side with Putin. He's more in the category of a Russian puppet since his civil war began than he was beforehand. Uh, and so, again, this was a surprise. It was kind of deft on Zelensky's part. I think we can all agree, right? That And, and again, uh, the Arabs had good reason to do this on their own side. And then from Jeddah, where, by the way, a lot of things are happening, that Jeddah is the main Saudi port on the Red Sea. So uh, many people are being evacuated from Sudan, as we've discussed in previous episodes, just taking boats across the Red Sea from Port Sudan to Jeddah. Uh, and Jeddah is always a strategically important port. You know, if you're if you have an oil tanker that's sending oil to Europe, uh, you generally are going to leave from Jeddah and go up through the Suez Canal, out into the Mediterranean, and on to Europe. Any European high-level industrial goods that are being exported from Europe to Saudi Arabia probably going to go the other way, down through the Suez Canal, into the Red Sea, and into Jeddah. So uh, there's a lot happening there. Anyway, Zelensky left Jeddah and went directly to the G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan, where he met with President Biden, 
uh, among, of course, the rest of the uh, G7 leaders and some of the guest leaders who were at that summit. Mind you, uh, one of the leaders who hoped to meet with him at that summit but did not was Luis Inácio da Silva, better known as Lula, the president of Brazil, who seemingly was snubbed by Zelensky. Uh, Lula subsequently uh, offered to mediate in the war, uh, that, that, you know, hold some sort of peace talks, uh, as have uh, Cyril Ramaphosa at the head of a, uh, that is the president of South Africa, at the head of an African uh, delegation of about six nations. Uh, they, the, the Ukrainians, that is, uh, have very judiciously said we welcome any ideas that could hasten the end of the war. But both South Africa and Brazil, again, are at least thought to be tilted towards the Russian side of the equation. So I don't think anyone has any high expectations of this. Anyway, the main takeaway from the G7 summit in Hiroshima, as far as Ukraine is concerned, was that finally, at long last, there was an agreement to provide Ukraine with F-16 American-made fighter jets, uh, which they've been asking for forever, uh, and it seems are now going to be provided. I have not yet heard which nations are going to be providing these planes uh, and how many seems to be in the neighborhood of up to 50 or so planes. Uh, and they're not expected to arrive in Ukraine uh, until at least the summertime and probably longer. There needs to be training. So now, training so- should take four to six months, according That's to... What- uh, an internal U.S. Air Force document and a former NATO commander, as reported by The New York Times. That's exactly right. Now, the Ukrainians will and have said that, uh, well, we've proven over and over again that we can quickly train uh, on advanced weapon systems faster than anybody thought we could and things like this. And that's true. Uh, that ha- is something that they've done. But I would caution our listeners not to... Now, mind you, I've been hoping that these planes would be provided for quite some time, so I'm very much in favor of this. But, for example, if you're operating any weapon system, some of, you know, you're going to make mistakes. People make mistakes, and that happens in war as in other areas. And if you're talking about any weapon system, it strikes me that the biggest mistake you can make in operating a component of a weapon system is a mistake that results in the destruction of that component and or the death of the operator, right? It doesn't matter, you know, it could be any, you know, the HIMARS rocket launcher, for instance, right? If you lose the HIMARS and, you know, maybe it blows up and, you know, and it, it kills or injures the operator of the system. I think and I don't know. And again, uh, I would remind our listeners that neither you nor I have any military training whatsoever. Uh, but it just strikes me that an F-16 probably costs more than a high Mars rocket launcher. Right. And because an F-16 is flying through the air and a high Mars rocket launcher is not, it's easier to make the worst possible mistake with an F-16 than it is to make the worst possible mistake with a high Mars rocket launcher. So 
it's great if you think you can train faster on this. But the point is that the stakes of making a mistake with an F-16 are just much greater than they are with any other kind of weapon system that's been provided to Ukraine thus far. It's deadlier to the operator and much harder to replace. Exactly. Much more more instantly deadly, let's say. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, and again, if you're only getting 50 of them, you know, you need to be... uh, Tread lightly. Absolutely. So, after that, we went through all the stuff that you mentioned off the top. The attacks in Belgorod, including, by the way... uh, what seemed to have been attacks by Russian anti-Putin partisans around Belgorod, right? Two different militia, uh, one called the Liberation of Russia Legion or the Free Russian Legion, depending on how you want to translate these specific words, uh, and another one by the uh, an outfit called the Russian Volunteer Forces. Now, uh, one of the commentators I've seen throughout the war, mainly on uh, DW or Deutsche Welle, that is the DW is the English language broadcast arm of Deutsche Welle in in Berlin, uh, is a, uh, I don't want to say professor, her name is Jade McGlynn, and she is identified as a researcher at King's College London. Now, if someone in america were identified by that sort of nomenclature i would think that they were just a graduate student so i think that these terms mean something different inside of british academia than they do here because jade mcglynn that's dr mcglynn to you pal right Mm -hmm. she has a phd from oxford maybe she just doesn't teach i don't again i don't quite understand how the terms differ on that side of the pond but dr mcglynn said unequivocally straight up very matter of factly that the russian volunteer forces that is one of these two militia are a neo-nazi russian militia and they're anti-putin yes uh so this is wait sam so they're they're fighting for the russians or they're fighting for the ukrainians they're fighting they are attacking the russians on behalf of the Ukrainians, apparently, yes, or at but least, they are neo Nazis. They are neo. She's yes. That's according to, to Jade McGlynn. They are a neo Nazi militia. This is a little awkward for Ukraine, uh, <laughs> but to say the least. But again, this is just one of many things that are happening, right? Including uh, the uh, actual artillery attacks being launched cross border uh, in. Numerous areas, not just Belgorod, but also in the south of Ukraine against oil refineries. Uh, Just the other day, interestingly to me, uh, the British Foreign Secretary, uh, James Cleverly, which incidentally, I think is one of the all time great British political names. It's almost like worthy of an Ian Fleming. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, anyway, James Cleverly said that. Cross-border attacks against the military targets are legitimate forms of Ukrainian self-defense. And didn't somebody somebody high up in the government, it wasn't a Biden who said, or somebody in our government said, uh, we don't condone it, but it's legit. Like, Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, and Cleverly went a little bit further, and I don't know if that's coordinated with 
the United States? I think it could be, but obviously I don't know. Uh, but basically uh, they're saying we're not saying do it, but we understand. That's right. I think that's the, I think that, you know, I, you know, cleverly again, went a little bit further than people on our side. Right. Which again, you might expect, right. Uh, it's the sort of good cop, bad cop type thing, right. Where you, you have Britain, right. Who is closer to the front than we are. Right. So you could understand maybe how they'd be a bit more gung ho. Uh, and again, they were the ones who provided the the cruise missiles, right? The storm shadow system. Uh, so this is all. Some commentators anyway have said that it seems as if the Western allies are beginning to define victory for Ukraine in terms that are more similar to the terms in which the Ukrainians define it, right? That is taking back all the territory, right? Because suddenly it's cruise missiles, suddenly it's F-16, suddenly uh, cross-border attacks are okay, right? Uh, And so it's difficult not to see this as an escalation, right? Uh, You know, not enormous, but anybody I think could be forgiven we're looking at it that way. And again, I'm very happy that they're getting the F-16s. The flip side, though, for me anyway, and this is just my personal opinion, is that I think that the Western allies believe that Ukraine is going to need these weapons in order just to not lose, right? That that Okay, so that checks out because... The narrative in this war seems consistent, right? There is a Russian attack. There is Ukrainian resolve and resistance. There is report of Ukrainian superior morale, right? There is report of the Russians being Keystone cops, but they still know how to dig in like it's World War One, So they're kind of hard to hard to move out. And they have lots of people. They have lots of people that they throw into the meat grinder, like the Wagner group, losing 100,000 men to take Bakhmut. And then it's the Russians. This has happened periodically through the war. Then the, oh, the Russians are getting better. Their, their, their artillery sightings getting better. And, you know, they're improving, but they're still a mess, but they're improving. And then it's like, oh, yes, but the Ukrainians have the resolve again. Like there's this constant push pull and it's ultimate stalemate. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, but ultimately, the Russians are still going to keep throwing people and they're going to refine their tactics specific to like infantry and artillery. And so that's what I think you're getting at. The Ukrainians are going to need this because the Russians yes, are stopping. Exactly. So we better give them more and better weapons, just like they've been asking for this entire time. And so uh, it's, uh, you know, war is hell. I mean, this is not good uh, in the. May 29th edition of The New Yorker, there was a long article by Luke Mogelson uh, in which he reported in harrowing detail from the front lines in the East. And it's just, you know, he was not in Bakhmut, but he was near them. Uh, And there's, you know, there's all this attention on Bakhmut, but there's a a whole, you know, hundreds of miles of front line where, uh, Things of that nature are happening. Also. That's all in the Donetsk 
Uh, yes, that's all around, and yeah. well, and also down towards near Crimea now. Uh, and Sea of Azov. Correct. Yes, that's right. Uh, the land bridge, as they call it, along the northern side of the Sea of Azov. And while I was reading this article, which I would recommend to anybody, by the way, uh, it struck me how little of this sort of reporting I've seen yeah. in, throughout the war. There's a little um, bit in The Guardian. Yeah, right? sure. And I'm sure there's probably articles of similar length that appear in the in the New York Times that I just haven't, you know, uh, that I haven't haven't happened to come across. Uh, but still, right, if, you know, on, in electronic media generally, you say, here's our reporter on the scene in Kiev. Remember right? embedded reporters for the Iraq war? Yes. But this is just so much more serious. Right. I mean, you could understand why, you know, a uh, uh, Western media outlet might not want to, you know, put a lot of people in, you know, because this you could just lose people right and left. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so uh, but again, I would recommend to anybody that they read this article just to get an idea of what's actually happening, because some guy standing outside on the street in Kiev, I'm glad to get that reporting, but it's not the same. No. Right. Uh, that's not really where the war is happening. Uh, and, and again, think- this is a staggeringly huge and bloody, deadly war, the like of which we've never seen in our lifetimes. That's right. Uh, and I keep coming back to 100,000 casualties for a city of mostly symbolic importance. That's right. And, on and- one side. Yes, and that will, you know, again, whoever takes it will gain nothing, right? I mean, there's, you know, the place is just ruined. And uh, it's, I happen to also, just by coincidence, see the uh, the Netflix version of All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, it's very good. It is very good. But it is that same kind of yes. thing, right? Uh, the weaponry obviously is nowhere near as modern, which... Uh, uh, struck me while I was watching it, but it's just hell out there. And but I it's still it, industrial scale. Yes. And I think it speaks to why uh, the Russians are suddenly uh, escalating the attacks on Kiev, right? Is that they want to try to break the morale of the Ukrainians, right? And they've generally, up until recently, have not really been attacking Kiev all that much. And I think that they realize that they've got to do that uh, in order to if they if they want to win. What do we make of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, criticizing the Russian defense ministry? Well, I mean, he's been doing this for months. And so. Uh, but th- is this a, is this Putin's not suddenly weak, right? No. Uh, in fact, I, I, I can't remember who it was, but I saw somebody on, I think, on DW the other night. Yeah, I think it was their uh, uh, their main one of their main correspondents, and he said that uh, Prigozhin's sort of acting like no, you know what I think was uh, oh, honestly I don't remember who it was, but Prigozhin could be basically acting as Putin's mouthpiece, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in fact, in that he's saying things about senior Russian defense officials that. Putin would like to be able to say in public, but cannot, can't right Uh, now. But who's to say, right? We don't really know. Right. And the, the 
for instance, before the war is started, if anybody asked Prigozhin about the Wagner group, he would say, I have nothing to do with that. And if you continue to say that I do, I will sue you. Right. And so, I mean, you can't really take anything he says seriously. He's been he's said for months that he's taken Bakhmut. Right. He said this at least three or four times prior to now. The only reason we believe it from last week is because he made a video. Well, and because he actually did. Right. right? Uh, but he also gave a lengthy uh, interview to a, a, a military blogger in Russia. Right. In which he said that uh, this situation inside of Russia could be similar to 1917. Can you take this seriously? And that actually leads us into... I mean, uh, Sam, can you take that seriously? You can't, the, right? The point is you can't uh, superficially take it seriously. You can't take it at face value coming from him, right? right? It may or may not be true. It could even, in fact, be true, but we just can't trust this guy. Yeah, but it's just like if Prigozhin says it, you have no way of knowing. Right. Uh, Speaking but, of no way of knowing, I watched the Dennis Volkov interview on the news exactly hour where I was going. Right. Yeah. He's a rush. Uh, forgive me. He's probably got a nicer title than this, but he's a Russian pollster. Yes, that's right. He is. I mean, he runs the Levada Center, which even now, which is in Moscow. Yes. Even now is a highly regarded polling outfit. Uh, just internationally. How does right? he manage to be independent without getting arrested or shot? Well, OK, you'll notice Right. If you watch that interview, which was on the news hour on like two or three nights ago, yeah, Monday, ago. Tuesday, I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I would recommend to anybody that they watch it. It's eight minutes long. It's worth it. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Volkov, he's a cool customer. Right. Uh, he, you know, was very judicious about what he was saying without seeming to be very careful, you know, like to be scared about having to say anything. But I noticed that. Right. All he would say was, we took a poll and here's what it says. So here's what it said. 75% support the war in Russia. 50% strongly support the war in Russia. 35% circumstantially support the war in Russia, which means they have some things they don't like about it. And then he said there's a 20 to 25%. Uh what was that cohort group of yeah, uh, sure. those who are like hawkishly supportive That's of right. the war. Now, again, in, in authoritarian regimes, polling is weird. Right. But you know what? Polling is weird everywhere. Right? I mean, honestly, I wish that American pollsters would be as cool about this as, as Volkov was. Right? Well, he so- doesn't need to cut the line to get to the top. Of the news cycle, right? Whenever he's got information, it's news. Yeah, but not only that. Not excusing it. I'm just pointing that out. Yeah, but you're right about that, right? But when he says, we took a poll and here's what it says, that's all that any pollster should ever say, actually, instead of this endless, you know, interpretation of what this quote really means. Hyperventilation, right? Yeah, you know, uh, and so, but... Even if we can't take these numbers at face value, and I don't think Volkov would say we should, by the way. I noticed he didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, He, uh, There is obviously a fair amount of public support 
for the war. And it speaks to what we've talked about in, in relation to other countries, for instance, Turkey last week or a couple of weeks ago. Right. The, and even in our own country, the fact is authoritarianism has a real constituency in anywhere. Right. Not just in Russia, not just in Turkey, but there's a constituency for it right here, as we know. Uh, and not only that, but for instance, when the war started and Putin would, came out and said all these things that just seemed crazy. Right. There's no such thing as Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, now he didn't make any of that up. Right. That's not something no, that, that was existing nationalist law. That's been the Russian nationalist narrative for a very long time. Now, there might be people in Russia who who might think he overdid it a little bit. Right. But the idea that Ukraine has always or, you know, historically been part of Russia uh, is uh not something that's new in the Russian public discussion at all, right? And in fact, people in the United States, yeah, we would prefer that Ukraine was more in our sphere of influence than it was in the Russian sphere of influence. There, that's not something people are making up, right? That doesn't mean that we're, you know... Uh, Willing to have World War Three over it. Yeah, exactly, right? It's not like... Uh, uh, it doesn't confirm the Russian, the, the, the Putin's narrative. But the point is that uh, the basic case that Putin is making is not something that's at all foreign to uh, uh, to how Russians think about Ukraine just in very general terms. Did you see the note about the Ukrainian intelligence agency, SBU, asking civilians to take down any outdoor webcams that record live stream scenes from Ukraine? because Russia is exploiting the camera feeds to help guide its missile attacks in real time? I hadn't heard about that. It makes a lot of sense. Take down right? your ring doorbells, everybody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Because they hack the live stream and it helps guide the missiles. Sure, absolutely, right? You, geolocation and stuff like this. You know, it's it's not uh, all that difficult to do. Uh, yeah, should we talk jobs report? About, yeah, I mean, the jobs report, it's just more of the same. Right. I mean, it's just like more, more job, job more growth. Jobs. U.S. employers added 339,000 jobs up from uh, 294,000 in April. So That's May right. added 339,000 jobs. Unemployment went up to 3.7 from 3.4 percent, <laughs> which is still like astronomically low or pretty historically low. That's right. Um, and this this uh, jobs total blew expectations out of the water. Uh, the, the economists were expecting less than 200,000 jobs added, which is still, by the way, lots of jobs. You're still adding jobs. Yeah. And so uh, we'll see what happens two weeks from now when the Fed next meets. But even before this jobs report came out, uh, investors were expecting uh, that the Fed would probably hike again. And this only adds to that expectation, I would imagine. Uh, again, we'll find out. Uh, but it's just more of the same. And and <clears throat> again, economists expected fewer jobs. Economists were wrong. That's just something that happened. That's OK. Right. I mean, uh, it's not like you're crashing an F-16. Right. But, uh, you know, it's just that's just something that happened. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that wage growth slowed was just up three tenths of a percent over last month and four point three percent over the year. So. Yes. And Some so, of the uh, the Fed's cooling effect may be, may yes, be taking effect. Right. And, and again, 
there seems to be little, if any, danger of a wage price spiral, uh, which would be something we don't want to see happen. Because, But again, inflation just not cooling off as much as the Fed would like, which is why people, I think, expect that they're going to hike rates again. U.S. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy uh, put on his big boy pants and had a grown-up negotiation and agreement with uh, President Biden and right. avoided a uh, global financial catastrophe, which That's was right. thoughtful of him, I thought. Well, Though we're talking well, about the debt ceiling agreement. The United States is not going to default on its debts. That's right. And then it passed the Senate. Biden will probably sign it today or tomorrow. I mean, it's patently ludicrous that this is in doubt whatsoever. And that's why we haven't talked about it thus far, because it seems like it actually is an economics story. It's a f- political football. It's just a political story. However, now I should say that, you know, there has been some. Now, if we defaulted on the debts, it'd be a huge economic story. It would be. An, it would have been an economic story at that point. And there was some mild market volatility in, you know, when it was in question. Uh, however, there is a foreign policy angle to this story. Uh, having to do with uh, United States global leadership. And it's sort of like what we were speaking about before with Americans just not really checking in with Ukraine, right? Is that we're, we got so used to thinking of ourselves as the global leader uh, that uh, I think we are sometimes not as aware as we might want to be that the rest of the world is kind of scratching their heads about that and not certain. Uh, I think that that's one of the biggest stories of American history so far in this century, right? If we look back at 20 years from now, when uh, 20 years ago, that is when the war in Iraq started. That was, I think, the the beginning of the sort of erosion of global leadership of, of the United States, where people started, that is, people in other parts of the world started saying, who put these know. guys in charge? They're yeah, pretty I don't dumb know about this. Yeah. Right? And then five years after that, it was the financial crisis. Eight yeah. years after that, Donald Trump becomes president. And so, if you're living in some other part of the world, I think it's pretty easy to say, "Okay, what's wrong? What is up with you people?" Right? Yeah, you went from uh, beating the Nazis, landing a man on the moon, and then uh, winning the Cold War to like complete nonsense. Yes, and so. Uh, since this episode was seemed to have been the closest that the United States ever came to a default, uh, it's just one more log on the fire. And right? like, again, a default would have been like a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the face. That's right. And, and everybody in the world would have suffered because of because of this merely as a result of domestic politics in the United States. Why should that country be the leader of the world? If there's an even, even if there's even a chance of that happening, and by the way, wh- when we assume the mantle of running the world, our two major political parties understood that. Yes, or did they? Right. Uh, well, they it, pretended to. Yeah, they they, they at least kept up did. appearances. But it, you know, they seemed to squander it almost immediately, or very soon thereafter. All right. Well, crisis averted, and. Uh, yeah, I just want to remind people there's a giant land war happening in Europe, and it's unbelievable that something like this is happening since the end of the Second World War. So, Well, I'm just glad that we got a chance to catch up with it today because it's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on going forward. All right. Send us an email if you want, Media at gmail.com. For Sam Park, I'm John Ramey. Have a great weekend. 
We'll talk to you next Friday. Thanks, everybody. 